Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy House, and Tom Rush is our guest today. So pumped. Tom Rush's career is a wonder. After stepping away from record labels and major tours in the 70s, he's managed to cultivate a dedicated audience that has loyally shown up for decades. Rush started college at Harvard as a marine biology major, but switched to English Lit and kept his love of music and writing strong throughout school. In fact, he did struggle with focusing on studying due to his very frequent trips to the Club 47, which is a folk club right around the corner from Harvard's campus in Cambridge, Mass. Tom was actually able to start playing around town and soon recorded an album, which was a novelty at the time. He became known as the guy with the record. His sound started off very traditional, recording versions of Lowland Scots and Appalachian folk songs. After a few albums in, he started looking for new material to record and came across a few unknown songwriters for his 1968 album, The Circle Game. Tom Rush was the first person to record songs by unknowns Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, and Jackson Brown. After a few albums into the 70s, Rush was burnt out. His label dropped him, and he needed a well-deserved break. In the 80s, Tom reinvented his career and laid the foundation for what it could look like for an independent musician to thrive. He established the Club 47 concerts at Boston Symphony Hall, an upscale event that allowed his fans to enjoy folk rock in style. He became a champion of up-and-coming musicians like Nancy Griffith and Sean Colvin. That nimbleness has followed him throughout the years and has proven most useful during the pandemic. Tom quickly created Rockport Sundays, his weekly video series where fans can support him via Patreon. Tom Rush, still doing it and doing it well in 2021. We're going to take a listen to a song from Rockport Sundays. This is Nothing But a Man, and then we'll get to our conversation with the legendary and very cool Tom Rush on Basic Folk. I was a king bee. I'd give you all my honey I was a John D I'd give you all my money I was a preacher man I laid a good book down Who ain't nothing but a man To love you honey Nothing but a man now Nothing but a man Nothing but a man To love you honey Nothing but a man I was a jet plane I'd ride you through the sky I was a night train I'd ride you through the night I was a steamroller Child, I would roll you over But I ain't nothing but a man To love you, honey Nothing but a man now 
Nothing but a man, sing it. Nothing but a man to love you, honey. Nothing but a man. Well, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. I've really been looking forward to this. Tom Rush, hello. Hello. Good to be here. I've got all sorts of questions for you, um, and some of them are pretty complex, but I'm excited about them. But if there's anything you don't want to answer, just let me know, and we can <laughs> we can skip it. Um, okay. Here. I'll plead the fifth. Yeah, totally. That's acceptable. You were adopted by Dick and Molly Rush in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I was. They were actually in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, Dick Rush, my adoptive dad, was a teacher at St. Paul's School. What was your upbringing like in terms of like knowing about being adopted and your feelings toward that? Well, I was all, I always knew I was a. I came out of some other woman's tummy, and she loved me, but she couldn't keep me for some reason we didn't know about. But they adopted me because they wanted me to be with them very much, and they loved me very much, and that was okay with me. Your dad was a teacher at St. Paul School in Concord, like you mentioned. Um, what, yeah. what was it like to have a parent as a teacher? Both of my parents were teachers, so I could answer this question as well. But like, what was it like to have a parent as a teacher in the way it like affected your own learning and how is education treated in your family? Well, I don't know that I have an answer for that. I mean, dad was dad was off teaching classes all day. I mean, he wasn't a teacher when he was home. Um, so he was, you know, he was, he had a job. He went off to his job and did his job. It was a bit of a, a strange, um, I think, environment. I shouldn't, maybe strange is the wrong word. Unusual environment because it was 400 pretty rich boys all, you know, sequestered in this in this very elaborate uh, opulent campus St. Paul's was a school for rich kids um it's not so much anymore but it was all boys back then and originally the boys would come with a butler with a servant and they had servants quarters for the for the servants that came with the students each boy had a butler yeah Wow. You got a problem with that? No, I just, that's a lot of butlers. <laughs> a whole lot of butlers. Um, then That wasn't the case when, you know, when I was there, when I was growing up there. But there was still a very, you know, it was a bunch of very privileged white boys. And, you know, it seemed quite normal to me because that's all I knew. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to public school. It was a public school within walking distance that I went to for grades one through six, and then I had to take a bus down into Concord for seventh grade. And then I was shipped off to Groton School in Massachusetts, which was very much like St. Paul's, only smaller. But it was also a bunch of white boys. Why didn't you go to St. Paul's? Oh, in those days, you did not do that. You didn't send your kid to the same school you were teaching at for fear of favoritism oh. or the perception of favoritism, which would require the other teachers to be extra hard on you to show they weren't showing favoritism. That was the idea. Now they do it all the time, but back then it just wasn't done. So I did like 
four to six hours of reading about you before Uh-oh. this interview. And in reading about you, it seems <laughs> this like... Is, this is not fair, Cindy. You know more than I do, probably. Maybe, but I can help you. Okay, good. It seems like you are a student who didn't, um, if this makes sense, like learn how to learn until you were at Harvard, like you went to the Groton School where you were told what to do and how to learn and what to write about, like you weren't able to make your own decisions about like anything. Um, How did you find that style detrimental and what did it feel like when you finally did discover your learning style? Well, um, you've probably, you know, you've already already read this, but... um, Groton and St. Paul's are supposed to be their prep schools, meaning preparatory, and they prepare you, supposedly, for college. And it was not the case in my experience because, as you said, I was, you know, I was told what to write about, you know, turn in three pages, five pages, whatever, and uh, this is what you're going to say. And then they would critique how you said it. But when I got to Harvard... Professor said, "Turn in fifteen pages by Friday." And I went up and asked him, "What I'm? What am I supposed to say?" And he laughed at me. And it was a very disorienting, and you know, first couple of semesters there because nobody was telling me what to do. I had to do it on my own. I had to figure out what to do. Um, and it took a while. What did it feel like when you got your own footing? Well, then it was then it, it kind of became fun because then there was actually you know more of a a dialogue between the teachers and the students mm. or the teachers and me. A lot of the professors were big deals. Uh, they had written the book about whatever it was twenty years ago, and they they would lecture, but there were uh, section men who would actually do the teaching after the lectures were over. They're uh, butlers. <laughs> well, no, they were they were they, they were mostly graduate students who were trying to make a trying to make a little extra money on the side by helping the professor with you know the after after class question and answers and handing out assignments and stuff. You started at Harvard studying marine biology. Is that right? I did. Yeah. I did. Where did that come from? And <laughs> even though you like switched to English lit and you've been in music all these years, how do you still relate to your interest in science? Well, I'm still I still read the science section in the Tuesday New York Times. Um, but I had at Groton there were a couple of there were they tell you if you have a teacher that's that's really inspirational to you, you're very lucky. And I actually at Groton had four. Two of them were English teachers. And two of them were science teachers. And one of them was the biology teacher, Mr. Foster. And he just made biology a lot of fun. I was actually also becoming enamored of skin diving about the same time. And when it came time to pick a college, my father, who was faculty advisor to hundreds of kids over the years and would tell them which colleges to apply to and he refused to give me any advice. It's your life, it's your decision. Uh, Until I decided 
I was accepted at Harvard, Princeton, and the University of North Carolina. And I decided I wanted to go to North Carolina because they had a really good marine biology department. And Dad, at the 11th hour, 59th minute, hmm. said, Tom, it's your life, it's your decision, you're going to Harvard. <laughs> uh, so I went to Harvard, and the introductory biology course there was horrible. It was actually abolished the year after I took it. Oh, they, wow. they said, this, this course isn't working, we're going to get rid of it. But it was you know, just brute memorization of 200 phyla of fungi things that you know you're never going to need in, in the rest for the rest of your life and it just killed whatever enthusiasm i had for biology i didn't know what i was going to that was going to be my major and all of a sudden i had to decide at the end of my freshman year what my major was actually going to be and the father of a friend it was actually do you know the actor peter coyote no he was um he played keys in uh ET phone home okay. the movie ET he he was he was a big deal actor but he was also a a childhood chum and uh his father said well you should major in english because it's a good background for almost anything so i said okay <laughs> and i signed up for english and um I'm getting off topic here. but You said the most important thing about Harvard was that it put me in Cambridge, Mass., where all this folk music was happening. Could you like set the scene, give a sense of what it was like back then? Where were you seeing live music? Who was in the audience? What were they acting like? Um, what about the after parties and the hootenannies? Well, let me, let me uh, and maybe you already know this stuff, but uh, give you a little bit of context. I learned to play the guitar. I loved the rock and roll scene. I learned to play as best I could. You know some of the songs that uh, that Elvis was doing, and the Everly Brothers, and Gene Vincent, and you know these people were my heroes. Then we went on a family trip across the country, stopped in Jackson Hole, and. Um, the people that we were staying with, it was a, it was a working ranch, but the, the woman, Betty Woolsey. This is in Wyoming? In, in Wyoming, okay. yeah. J Jackson Hole, like, Wyoming. Jackson Hole? The Cape? That doesn't make sense. Wyoming. No. Okay. <laughs> Wyoming. Oh, I ended up living in Jackson Hole recently. For, for the about wolves. 12 years. Yeah, for the wolves. Anyway. We stopped in Jackson Hole, stayed at Betty Woolsey's ranch, which was about a quarter of a mile from where I ended up living for part of the... Wow. Later, you know, many decades later. And she had some Josh White recordings, and I had never heard songs like that. I had never heard a guitar played like that. And I decided I wanted to be Josh White. And I got totally sucked into the whole folk music scene, but it was kind of the commercial end of the folk music scene. And when I got to Cambridge, I was told, no, no, Josh White is commercial. We don't like that. We like ethnic. We want people who built their own instruments and can't read or write and worked in, on chain gangs and stuff. Anyway, I, I, got, I really got into the, uh, into the whole music scene there. I had a, 
I inherited a little folk show on Harvard's uh, FM station. It was called Balladeers. I think it was half an hour on Wednesday nights. I had to have live guests come on the show. And I actually would, I, I would go to the Hootenannies, the open mics, but I also decided I would try to recruit some well-known, uh, famous people, where traditionally it had strictly been local, local folkies. Mm-hmm. I went out and I got uh, people who were in town giving concerts, including Josh White, to come on the show. Um, Pete Seeger, Odetta, I'm not sure if Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall were guests of mine or not, but some of the old blues guys, Jesse Fuller. <clears throat> so it was really a, an, a total immersion kind of thing. And the Club 47, which was the flagship of the coffee house fleet in my mind, was just one block from my dorm, which led to my being there too much and getting bad grades. <laughs> but it was cool, and it was a, it was a little 80-seat room, and they hosted the local kids. There was a band, bluegrass band called the Charles River Valley Boys. Um, Jim Queskin and the Jug Band. There were a bunch of people who had no notion of becoming professionals. They were typewriter repairmen and psychopharmacologists. And the psychopharmacologist was very popular. And they, they, you know, they just loved playing music. They didn't have aspirations of being becoming professionals. Uh, a few of us did go on to become professionals. Queskin and Baez, of course. Jeff Muldar, Maria Muldar. But a lot of them were just playing for the fun of it. And it was great. You could sit in the audience and have fun. And after the shows, well, the Club 47 also, I should back up, also was the one place that made a point of hiring the legends. They would find these people, these old timers who we revered, whose, you know, 78s we'd been collecting and trying to learn how they <clears throat> how they played that guitar that way. And they would hire these guys and get them sometimes get them out of retirement, have them come mm. to Cambridge and play this little 80 seat room, which must have been really disorienting for some of the blues guys because they were used to playing the roadhouses in the south with the chicken wire in front of the stage. Right. Because people would throw things at the musicians. And now here they are in Cambridge at a coffee house. A listening room. People are quiet. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no liquor at all. People, a bunch of white, white kids actually listening to you. Hmm. It, must, it must have been very, very strange. But they were, they were, for the most part, they were great. And then there would be a party or a gathering uh, at Betsy and Bob Siggins' house afterwards. And very often the legends would come along and you could get hang out with these people and ask them, how do you do that thing you do? And they would show you. It was, it was very cool. I started playing, I actually started ac- by ac- almost by accident. I, to get people to come on my radio show, I had to go to the Hootenannies and recruit talent to come on the show and I discovered you probably read this bit but I discovered you could get in for free if you had a guitar and then you could get in for free if you had a guitar case and so I'd put a six pack in the guitar case and had to head off to the Hootenannies. Is that because you had no intention of playing the Hootenanny you just wanted to no no I just wanted to I wanted to hang out and see who was who was the best talent and then ask them if they'd come on the radio show 
and you know have maybe have a beer or two in the back room and at a place called the golden vanity i got caught they ran out of singers and they said hey get on stage you got in for nothing and i had to borrow a guitar and i was very very nervous and the owner called me a few weeks later and asked if I'd come down and be a substitute folk singer because the scheduled artist was sick. And that's when I started, you know, actually playing on somewhat of a regular basis. Um, and then I got a gig at the Unicorn, a regular gig. The guy running the Unicorn was a fellow named Byron Leonardos. And he had this idea that if he hired me for a regular weeknight, like every Tuesday, I could build an audience. And it was actually working. Byron then got hired to go run the Club 47, and he brought me along with him. I don't know that I would have gotten into the Club 47 without Byron. Um, but I, then I had a regular night at the Club 47. Why don't you think it you would get... You wouldn't have gotten into the club. It was a pretty snobby clique hmm. there, and um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe I would have. I maybe I'm not giving myself uh, enough credit. But um, anyway, the the idea of having a regular night did in fact work to build me an audience. My my goal in life at that point, was to draw as many people as Jackie Washington, who, uh, his name was actually Jack Landrone, but he went under the name Jackie Washington, and he was a fabulous perf entertainer, performer, and he had crowds lined up down the block, and, and I eventually got to the point where I also had crowds <laughs> lined up down the block. And then I started, you know, uh, getting concert gigs, and pretty soon uh, didn't, I wasn't playing the coffee houses anymore because, you know, I was getting college concerts, which paid a lot better. You the lucrative for gig. A lot, yeah, a lot more. I, yeah, playing the Club 47, the paycheck was, I think, 10 bucks. Mm. Um, and you could, uh, you know, it was enough to buy a six-pack and some pizza. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I started making, you know, getting gigs that were, could actually pay the rent. And uh, so I, I went off in that direction. And, I, you know, it started out in the greater Boston area and then, Expanded. And then I started, yeah. you know, started traveling so you've, down, the, down the East Coast to begin with. You seem to have, like, always had this a combination of, like, being agile in your career and knowing when enough is enough. You know what I mean? Like... In, in, in thinking about all the records you put out in the 70s on Electra and Columbia were pretty like mainstream sounding and you were having some great success and you were touring like crazy. And then your last record, was it in 1974? Ladies Love yeah, Outlaws? Yeah, I think so. That was your last studio record until 2006? 35 years, yeah. Yeah, and like... From the way it looks, from my perspective, if you had kept going at that same trajectory, you could have had like a massive career. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's the case. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> the tra trajectory with Columbia, 
was I made, I think it was three albums for them. And then they, and they, each one was not doing a whole lot better than the last one. And they had other artists that were selling big, big tonnage. And I was selling, you know, they were making money on me. But I was not, I did not have any number one hits mm. or anything like that. They um, didn't send me the renewal notice on time. After the third album, they had to, you know, I was in as long as they sent me a renewal notice by a certain date. And they didn't. And I said, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to go, you know, see what David Geffen has to say out on the West Coast. And Columbia said, no, no, no. No, if you go to another label, we will sue you. So I got a lawyer. <clears throat> and the lawyer said, yeah, yeah, they'll sue you. You better make another album for them. Then that lawyer went to work for Columbia. So <laughs> I'm not sure I was getting good mm. advice. I think I could have walked away and they would have, they wouldn't have, anyway. So then I had to make another album for them and we made Ladies Love Outlaws where they had more control than they had ever had before. And it was an album that I don't think really resonated with my audience. It was different enough that my audience didn't respond as well as they might have. And it didn't, you know, sell the tonnage that, that, Columbia was looking for and then so then they dropped my contract so now I'm out on the street instead of being out on the street of my own will mm. I'm out on the street because somebody dropped my contract because I wasn't selling enough and it was a whole different dynamic there <clears throat> so I basically quit showbiz for a while it was six months but I was also getting burned out from just traveling so much. And um, the dynamic is that the, the, basically the, the musician is a money pump from the perspective of the managers and the agents and the record companies. The musician causes money to flow from the wallets of people into their wallets. <clears throat> and so I would end up doing I had a band on the road, and I started actually at one point doing some math. Why am I broke? I'm making like five grand, ten grand a night, and this is back when ten grand was probably more like fifty grand today. Mm. And I'm broke, or I'm close to it. And I started doing the math, and I realized the first night out, I'm working for the band. Second night, I'm working for the manager. Third night, I'm working for the agent. Fourth night, I'm working for the uh, for the hotels. Fifth night, I'm working for the airlines. <laughs> the sixth night, if there is one, I might make a little money, but but maybe not. Um, I mean, Joe Cocker went out with his Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour, sold out stadiums all over the world, and ended up bankrupt because they were spending his money so fast so much faster than it was coming in. I was I actually played with my band on consecutive nights in this order. Boston, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, and Washington DC. That's not a good. And I was that's making not good I was routing. Paid, <laughs> No, I was getting paid huge money 
but I, you know, I ended up losing money on those, on those five nights. <clears throat> anyway, um, so I haven't been all that clever. You know, it's also interesting to think about um, in your career, like from the way it looks, like you kind of like paved the way, laid this foundation for how to operate as an independent musician. Like your career survived without label support. How are you able to do that? And where do you see that reflected in the modern independent musician? Um, but before the, the Symphony Hall show in 1980, Columbia dropped me um, around 1975. And I tried to get another record deal um, because back in those days, you did not exist if you didn't have a record deal. The record company got you on the radio. They got you on the TV, hopefully. They got the newspapers to write about you, and all of that helped to sell tickets to the shows, and it all worked very well together until you didn't have a record deal anymore. So I'm out on the street, and I'm thinking... I know I still have an audience. They couldn't all have died at the same time. It would have been in the papers. So they're there. How do I, how do I connect with them? So I started a little mail order business and was mailing out LPs, <laughs> which was quite an undertaking, and sending out you know snail mail uh, solicitations. Um, and I'm taking out ads. I put, took out ads in the New Yorker magazine, and it worked. It it worked uh, not as well as a record company, but it worked. And I think maybe that served as a model for some other artists who were also wondering, how do you make a living in this day and age? Now, of course, everything has changed totally because of the Internet, and any kid with a laptop can have her own uh, record company and radio station and TV station and... The challenge now is to how to be heard above above the din. Uh, there's just so much of it going on. I'm lucky. I'm lucky in that you know I have some fans left over from from those good old days, and they've been they've been very good to me. Um, it turns out if you have a thousand fans willing to spend a hundred dollars a year on you, um, not all at once necessarily. But a ticket, you know, a concert ticket here and a CD there and a download somewhere else, um, it, it works out. It works out well. Um, the thing that's bugging me right now is with this Rockport Sundays project, there are seven and a half billion people on the planet that haven't signed up yet. So I've got I've to get to work. Hey everybody, it's Cindy from Basic Folk. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapists. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. Very convenient. You start communicating in under 48 hours. Professional counseling done securely online. It is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT plus matters, grief, self-esteem, 
Anything that you share is confidential, and you can start living a happier life today by getting 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash songwriter. You can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash songwriter. Bye. What you've kind of like made your career about is um, discovering and sharing music, kind of putting it alongside you know, putting somebody like Bo Diddley up alongside someone who might be lesser known, and you've kind of done that your whole career in discovering and sharing music, um, you know, looking for musicians to play on your radio show. You're known for introducing the world to songwriters like Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, through your own recordings. So can you talk about the act and the art of music discovery for you, like what it feels like to hear something new that you just love and about that need and that want to share it with others? Well, it's partly, um, there's a couple, <clears throat> a couple of layers there. The, the reason I picked the name, the name Club 47, or well, I, I told you why I actually ended up uh, trademarking the name Club 47, but part of what happened at the Club 47 was that the legends, it was a place where you could go hear the legends and you could go hear the kids. And I thought, well, if I'm doing shows at Symphony Hall and I've got, I want to have guest artists, I need, I need a one or two that are well-known in order to sell tickets. But then it would be exciting to bring in a couple of unknown artists who are really, really good, but you've never heard of them. And the audience loves that. They, they go away with a really exciting feeling that they discovered something marvelous. And the other, the, <clears throat> the other thing I would do is I would browbeat these artists into playing with one another. They couldn't just come and do their own little separate set <laughs> and then they're done. It was I would go out and do a couple of songs I would introduce my next, my first guest, and we would do something together, and then I would leave, and they would do five or six songs and bring on the next next guest, and they would do something together. <clears throat> and the that's the way the evening would be daisy chained. And then if you had somebody like David Bromberg, who is a brilliant accompanist, or nowadays Matt Nicoa, who's a brilliant accompanist as well as being a great frontman they can come and go during the evening and back this person up and that person in. It takes a day or, or two of rehearsals. Mm -hmm. it's, it's extra, there's some extra work there. But it makes for a, a, a show that has never happened before, may never happen again, and is really exciting mm. because these people are really good. And when you put them a little bit outside their comfort zone, in, interesting things happen. Um, in terms of picking songs, I just I go with the uh, the goosebump mm. factor. I hear a song and I think, oh, that's. And sometimes I say, oh, that's wonderful, but I should I shouldn't even attempt it. <laughs> uh, but maybe they could be a guest on one of my shows. Uh, <clears throat> but other times, as with Joni Mitchell, James, and Jackson, I hear songs and say, oh, I got to do that one. Mm. Uh, and when I, just as an aside, when I'm doing somebody else's song, I 
I try to learn it um, off the recording, whatever it is. Sometimes it's a tape, sometimes it's a, an MP3, sometimes whatever. I try to learn it, and then I don't listen to the source again after that, and I play it over and over and over, and it drifts away from the the source material, and it becomes different. And that's, you know, I wouldn't want to try to just mimic the original. There's no point in that. It's already been done. Probably better than I could do it. So unless I have something different to say about it, I, I, I won't try it. Um, but <laughs> I remember James, I, what was the song? I did, he sent me a tape of uh, Riding on a Railroad singing someone else's song and it was funny the tape he sent he sent me the tape it was recording tape wrapped around a stick with a note saying sorry tom i didn't have a take-up reel no (laughs) like a reel to reel yeah and he just oh my god it was just a, a jt tape wrapped around a stick and i actually used that Later, later on, I was <clears throat> asked to, to write a jingle for Matus Rosé. And I, the guy said, we'll give you 300 bucks to write a, to submit a, 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 a demo. And I said, I won't get out of bed for 300 bucks, but I tell you what, I'll send you a <laughs> demo. And if you like it, you'll pay me, you'll pay me a lot of money. And then I, um, I'd actually been doing some leather work, and I put a needle through two of my fingers, so I had to write this thing using less fingers than would be optimal. But I then said, this guy's in Chicago. He works for an ad agency. I took the tape, and I wrapped it around a stick (laughs) and sent it to him, and I timed it to arrive. This is, I have have brilliant ideas. Very seldom do they work, but this one did. But when they do... I had, I timed it to arrive during the meeting when they were deciding what song to pick. And it did. And they opened the package and there's this tape wrapped around a stick. <laughs> so they have to stop the meeting, send somebody out to buy a take-up reel. They have to wind it onto the take-up reel and then play. And by the time you've invested that much, you have to love it. Right. There's really no choice. <laughs> and so I, so I, got, I got the gig. I got the gig, and they paid me a lot of money for it. Anyway, I recorded Riding on a Railroad, and James later said, next time you do one of my songs, Tom, let me, let me show you the chords. <laughs> <laughs> let me teach you how to play this song. That's funny. Yeah. And I do things, you know, like Jackson Brown's These Days. I, li- I leave out a verse. I thought it was too long, so I left out a verse. Mm. And he's got more chords than I do. Hmm. But I I like my version better. <laughs> so I'm sure a lot of people do because they heard it first. Well, that's that that is very important. You tend to you tend to uh, bond with the one you hear first, which is a can be a problem. I'm I'm now doing this uh, Rockport Sundays thing, and I'm introducing some new songs. Mm-hmm. And my notion is to put together perhaps an album of solo versions of these songs, Mm -hmm. kitchen table recordings, and then go to Nashville and record them with a band 
And my concern and ruin is that people them. are going Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's precisely what I'm afraid people are going to think. Oh, it was so much better, you know, solo. So I don't know what to do. I did want to ask you about No Regrets, um, which came out on the Circle Game in 68. So you, you wrote it when you were a younger man, um, and that song has become a standard. It's been covered a lot of times, put two of your kids through college, and it's a song that you still perform. Um, how do you relate to No Regrets now, and how has it become more relevant to you now versus when you wrote it? Well, actually, I haven't done it. Uh, I've just started doing it again. I didn't do it for the past couple of years because I broke up with my wife, and it was kind of painful. So I stopped doing it. Um, Now I've started doing it again. But um, do you know the story of how it was written? Yes. Okay, let me tell the story. Jill Lumpkin, Lumpkin. who's on the cover of the Circle Game, came to visit you for the weekend. Yep, you got it. And it was the longest time you'd ever spent with a lady at once, and then you wrote it about an imaginary relationship. Yeah, which actually came true then, and and so did the breakup come true. Jeez. Um, Now, the success of that song is is another, you know, I've pondered pondered that a lot. Initially, I wrote the song, and nobody at that moment was really writing many songs. Dylan hadn't really gotten into the limelight yet. Um, I played the song for Judy Collins at her flat in New York. We were having tea, and I nervously got out my guitar and played it for her, and there was, I finished the song, and there was moments of silence, and she asked me if I'd like another cup of tea. And I thought, oh, <laughs> this, the song sucks. Okay, I'm sorry. And I didn't do it again for, for you know, quite a while. Finally, when I did do it, and, and it was <laughs> better received, um, it ended up being recorded by, and I can't remember who did it first, but Emmy Lou had a, had a very nice version of it. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Emmy Lou's version is why Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings ended up doing it, because everybody in country music reveres Emmy Lou. And then this band in England, the Walker Brothers, had a huge hit with it. Um, it was odd to me they never approached me about, do you have any more songs, Tom? I never had any dialogue, any, any connection with them at all. But that was a huge hit, and off of that came a bunch of other covers, including U2 starting to use the chorus in, uh, in their stage shows. So it's, it's an interesting way a song spreads or doesn't. There are, you know, the, you know Kenny Rogers' The Gambler, mm-hmm. the great big hit? That was recorded by three or four other artists before, including Johnny Cash, before Kenny Rogers had that hit with it. So some other highly qualified artists did it, and nobody noticed. And then Kenny Rogers, for whatever reason, that version 
you know, blows up into a gigantic hit. Mm. There's a lot of mystery involved. Well, Tom, before uh, we wrap up here, I was hoping that we could do the lightning round where I ask you, these questions will be easier than the questions I've been asking you, but will you participate? What's a lightning round? Well, I'll just ask you like some fun trivia songs, trivia facts, trivia questions okay. about yourself. All right. All right, here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? I'll say Money Honey. Do you like dogs or cats or something else? I like dogs. How do you take your coffee? And, and, ot- and otters. <laughs> River otters or sea otters? All of them. They're great. How do you take your coffee? Black. Your first celebrity crush? Ooh. <laughs> well, I don't know if it counts as a crush, but Paul Robeson. Do you know who he, who mm-hmm. he was? I wanted to be Paul Robeson. Wow, that deep, deep voice. Yes, but my voice hadn't changed yet, so it didn't work out. Yeah, well. that's a problem. You could sing, you could sing uh, the three other parts, but not Paul Robeson. You always yeah. want what you can't have. It's true. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Other than me. Other than you. <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding. <laughs> um. Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, I think Matt Nicoa, the guy that's that I've been working with oh. for the past six years, is a real sweetheart. That's nice. Nicer than Emmy Lou? Well, now, Emmy Lou has certain charm to her that... Uh... <laughs> Matt will never be able to match. Yeah. What's the first album you bought with your own money? Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. It was a single, though. It wasn't an album. What was your first concert? It would have been classical. My parents would have taken me to Symphony Hall to hear the Boston Symphony play something. Wow, culture. Yeah. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Flying or invisibility? Flying or invisibility? Mm -hmm. I don't understand the question. Would you rather be able to fly or be be invisible? Oh, fly. Good answer. Okay, last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I would have to say Jackson Hole. Nice. Wyoming. Yeah. Great. Well, that's it. That's the lightning round. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. This is so great. Thanks, Cindy. This episode of Basic Folk produced by Laura McCarthy. Our music was composed by Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy House. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all of the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts or at my website, cindyhouse.net. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye.